Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once you've done it. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Toure Reed, professor of U.S. and Afro-American history, and author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. We talk about identitarianism and essentialism, and the ways they can be used to prop up the power of the ruling class. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. All right, so we're here with uh, Dr. Toure Reed. We're really happy to have him on. Um, Dr. Reed's a professor at uh, Illinois State University in the United States and is a historian of African-American and 20th century US history. He's also the author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, which is a really good book that we're gonna be talking about a lot today. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, yeah, so you wrote an amazing book called Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Um, so in that book, you're, a big part of it is you're pushing back against the charge of kind of class reductionism, um, which leftists are often accused of by identitarians. Um, and you're arguing that actually, in reality, one of the main thrusts of contemporary American politics is something that you call race reductionism. Um, so we would love it if you could explain to our listeners what is meant by those two terms, class reductionism and race reductionism. Um, the background for race reductionism comes from the ubiquitous charge of class reductionism that was leveled at, at the Bernie Sanders campaign. And of course, he had never run on a campaign to repeal anti-discrimination policies or anything like that. And in fact, ironically, particularly if you take this from the jump off point of late 2015 and think about the Democratic primaries in 2015-2016, there was a candidate who at least her spouse had run on a campaign pledge to not end affirmative action, but to quote unquote, mend it. And that was Hillary Clinton, right? So mm -hmm. interestingly enough, the Clintons had come much closer to making a kind of, um, we call it colorblind case maybe, uh, that affirmative action and other such anti-discrimination policies had run their course. And if the real problems confronting black Americans were owed uh, to a great extent to their alleged cultural failings, right? And that's a super predator myth. It's, you know, it's part of underclass ideology which we can come back to. But the charge of class reductionism was ultimately leveled at Sanders, I think in part as an expression of a desire to push uh, progressive politics to the right. And it proceeded from a mischaracterization, at least in part, of where the failings of post-war liberalism had come from. And a tendency in that time period was, and, and subsequently, had been to contend that post-war liberalism had failed black Americans, and it most certainly had, um, at least it failed to eliminate disparities. Many Black Americans, my parents, <laughs> um, my grandparents uh, even, and, and certainly myself down, down the line had benefited from it. But nevertheless, post-war liberalism was incapable, it proved incapable of eliminating racial disparities. But interestingly enough, the problem that was associated, that, that, that this could be traced to, the root causes of the post-war liberalism's failings, were not liberals' class reductionism, which um, people like Tony C. Coates defined, if, if listeners aren't clear, as a tendency among liberal policymakers and by extension left policymakers, uh, as, as if one, they were left policymakers and they weren't, but two, as if liberals and leftists were the same thing and they're not, 
But the contention was that liberal social policy had, had failed blacks because liberals had tended to shy away from um, race and racism as explanations for inequality and instead had collapsed racial inequality to class inequality. And you know, there's full of, it's full of irony there and we can come back to the ironies in a second. But at the time when watching these criticisms that were directed at Sanders and eventually people like myself, I was very much taken aback as a historian and as a progressive by what was in effect the inaccurate, uh, if not wrong-headed assessment of the, of the problems at hand. And of course, what, and what really threw me off is that if you have someone like Sanders uh, who wasn't arguing in contrast to Bill Clinton or even hinting at the view that targeted anti-racist policies were passe, if you target some guy, some guy like that as a class reductionist, then what was implicit to it, and I certainly thought this was quite clear when the charge was leveled at me, uh, and other black academics uh, in my, my um, uh, group, my cadre, I guess is what, what we call them, my <laughs> fellow comrades, um, was that since none of us had ever argued anything on the spectrum of post-racialism or colorblindness, which are two versions of the same thing, and in fact, I mean, chapter four of Toward, Toward Freedom is an explicit critique of Obama's post-racialism, which is something that's also right. worth coming back. At too, but but the fact that the charge of class reductionism was directed at those of us who insisted that racism is real and consequential, but is insufficient to explain lingering disparities, what that meant is that what a class reductionist was, wasn't someone like I had first thought, someone who thought that racism was sort of secondary or inconsequential to life chances. What a class reductionist was really was someone who took seriously the social constructiveness of race and its implications as an ideology and as an ideology with a large cultural imprint and we're social animals. So ideologies with large cultural imprints are necessarily consequential, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not the engine that's driving the train. And so those people I realized suffered from what I would call race reductionism. So what is race reductionism? Because that's a long wind up for what's gonna to prove to be a pretty short pitch. So race reductionism at its most basic level refers to, I would, I argue, a formal or implicit rejection of the view that racism is a historically contingent form of prejudice, which is worth stressing, that is rooted in the, the racist's beliefs in biological or quasi-biological races, right? So treating race prejudice as a force of nature, let's say, um, is a problem. If you, if you describe racism as our original sin or it's, it's in our DNA, then what you're doing is you're removing race from the realm and racism, which I, again, I would define racism as the belief in biological races, right? Because that's the basis for prejudice. If you assume that all black men are dangerous, <laughs> right? Um, because blacks are overrepresented among perpetrators of violent crimes or what, for whatever rationale, but all black people, all black men are dangerous. Then what you're doing is you're denying individuality to black people you're treating them necessarily all as the same. You are buying, and what's the mechanism for denying them individuality, right? And, 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 and removing them from the social context, but it's race, right? It's race and racism, which means that you're treating race essentially as a biological or quasi-biological category. And usually the quasi-biological category is like a cultural group, but 
culture and race mean the same thing in people's minds, right? We don't make real distinctions between those two categories. And of course we should, but, but again, if you're, you're treating race prejudice as a, as a force of nature, it's in our DNA or um, it's our original sin or whatever, then, you know, the race reductionist not only takes for granted the existence of, of racial group interests, but race reductionism also insists upon treating material deprivations experienced by blacks and other non-white people as exceptional to capitalism, right? And the point that people like myself, uh, Cedric Johnson, Barbara Fields, or I should say the Fields sisters, mm -hmm. uh, my father, Adolph Reed, um, are making is that historically the way that race has functioned um, is just that. I mean, it's the, the purpose of race is to, to explain why the experiences, let's say, of American Indians or Blacks going back a couple hundred years or so um, are exceptional to liberalism, right? Why they don't get to, to play ball <laughs> with property holding white men in the, in the late 1700s, or early 1800s, why they can never right. hope to be part of the polity. That's what race, that's the work that race does, right? right? And in that era, and when you move the historical meter up to more modern times, right? Then race functions to explain um, why black and brown people are over, were overrepresented among sharecroppers and needed to be disenfranchised. Um, not because white people were bitten by the bug of, um, you know, or infected by the virus of some sort of racial metaphor, right? As Daniel Patrick Moynihan said in 1965, he used uh, a, a, a biological metaphor to explain racism. He described it as the racist virus that afflicts us all. So that's mm -hmm. not what it is. What, what race does is it explains why those people are at the bottom, mm -hmm. right? And why they can't have citizenship rights, why they can't move up uh, the economic ladder, et cetera. And even to, the, to this day, race still functions that way. I do this exercise with my students um, and I did this same exercise with some graduate students and uh, professors at another university in Illinois. I won't say which one, but I give um, a, a, some characteristics. So it's a, like a two-part um, exercise where I'll have in one part um, poor people and middle-class people and a list of antipodal characteristics. So smart, dumb, honest, dishonest, right? Um, promiscuous, um, monogamous, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll do, um, again, poor and middle-class in one category. And of course, middle-class people are smart. They work hard. They value education. Uh, they don't do drugs, et cetera. Not the middle-class people I know, but anyway, <laughs> that's, that's what my students always say. And then poor people, of course, don't value education. They're always doing drugs. Um, given the, the title of the show, I'll just say they're fucking everybody. Um, right? so the last thing they could possibly be is, is monogamous, um, et cetera, right? So all these horrible traits are associated with poor people and it explains why they're at the bottom. And these positive traits are, are associated with middle-class people that explains why they're middle to top. The part two of the exercise, same questions, black and white. And no surprise that students end up circling the same traits when they circle the traits for blacks. They're the same traits nearly line for line that they associate with poor people. And for whites, the traits that they circle that they associate with whites line up with the traits that they associate with middle-class people. And we all do this, right? We all kind of associate race with class sort of um, you know, organically without ever thinking about it. And that's illustrative of the work that race does. And interestingly enough, the last thing I'll say, because I've been going on for too long without 
giving you opportunity to ask follow-up questions and there's all kinds of stuff to, to elaborate on. Race baiters have always done this, right? So conservatives have always done some version of this. What's more interesting um, in a not good way, unless it were a movie, because then if it were a movie, I could leave um, the theater or turn the TV off and you know go to bed or whatever. But what's more interesting in recent years, liberals have have kind of been reading from the conservative playbook. So one of the, the arguments that I make uh, is that post-war policy, as I said, liberal policy has failed blacks because of a tendency toward race reductionism, not class reductionism. Mm. And for liberals, there's really two explanations for poverty. Um, and you can see this beginning with the Kennedy-Johnson administration. One option is race in the form of blacks' cultural deficiencies, right? Or alleged cultural, and it should be poor blacks alleged cultural deficiencies. And that's the Moynihan report, right? right? That's super predators that you see in the Clinton years. The other option is racism mm -hmm. in the form of white people's alleged cultural deficiencies. Right. Because that's where right. racism is our original sin, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to take responsibility for having shitty politics if you say racism is my original sin, right? Or if it's in our DNA, oh, you know, it's not that I have shitty politics. Mm -hmm. It's I just, I can't help it because, you know, some version of Eve um, or, or Lucy, if you're going with the DNA metaphor rather than the biblical metaphor. So it's interesting to see how liberals have begun to, in, in recent years, really in an in-your-face kind of way, ironically with Hillary Clinton, have begun to make the case to try to foster resentment among POCs toward hard scrabble whites, right? So it's long been the case that race baiters have said to whites on the, on the margins, mm -hmm. or at least who imagine they're on the margins, Hey, blame that person of color, right? That's yeah. that's the work that race that we're all familiar with. That's yeah. Reagan, it's Trump, it's you know, Vardaman going back to to um, of course the Jim Crow era, et cetera. But now you have a kind of progressive version where you say to POCs, hey, blame those poor white people for your problems, right? Or blame the privileged working class white people for your problems. Right. Um, and so racism's functioning in much the same way um, for liberals these days. Uh, as a as a vehicle, as a kind of divide and conquer, I would say. Great, yeah, that definitely set up um, a lot of the further questions that we have for you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we're going to tease out some of the um, some of the things that you mentioned. In fact, you mentioned like most of the things that we wanted to ask you about. We want to ask you, so thank you for that. Um, I guess I kind of just want to maybe get you to say a little bit more. You kind of have touched on it, but this concept in the book you talk about ontological race and the concept of ontological race. You, you brought up the idea of racism being the belief in race as like some kind of essential or biological reality that exists rather than a social construction. I find that in the like social justice spaces that I'm in, the idea of race as a social construction is not well understood. Um, it seems like it is something that people are not that familiar with. Um, and when you try to make the argument that it is a social construction, people take that often as saying that there is no material reality of racism. Um, and so they take it as like a denial of racism, as opposed to basically what you're actually trying to say is the opposite, that like racism is very real, but it's coming out of a fiction of race that isn't actually a real thing. So can you just maybe tease that out a little bit more for our listeners who might not be super familiar with the idea of race as a social construction? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think that you actually did a really nice job of teasing out 
a frustration that I've had because I have certainly observed myself that people tend to hear um, people like me who tell, who say that race is a fiction, but that doesn't mean that racism isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because those are right. two different things for social animals, but they, they tend to hear that as a denial of racism. Um, I'd written in a, an essay on Amy Cooper uh, and Jack mm-hmm. back in 2020 on that very issue. And one of the points that I made in trying to think about how to relay this in a non-complicated analogy mm-hmm. is, is this. I said in, in that piece that, you know, Jesus doesn't have to have been the son of God. He could have been, but he doesn't have to have been in order for there to be Christians. Because all a Christian is is someone who insists that Jesus was the son of God. Right. The fact that there are billions of people who are Muslims or Jewish or atheists or agnostics who might deny that Jesus was the son of God um, actively or um, reflexively doesn't mean that there weren't Christians Mm -hmm. who are just simply people who believe that Jesus, who may or may not have existed, I, I'm agnostic, right? Eight years of Catholic school did exactly what my father hoped it would do. It made me agnostic. So I don't have a horse in that race. But the fact of the matter is that um, Jesus does not have to have been the son of God for there to be people who believe that that he was. Right. And the fact that there are people who reject it doesn't, doesn't change the fact that there are actually Christians, nor does it change the fact that Christianity was an incredible, is, has been an incredibly influential in positive and negative ways, ideology was a large cultural imprint um, for centuries, right? So th- that's the fact. Mm-hmm. So that's an analogy that I like yeah. to go with. I know part of the problem is I think a lot of us academics who insist that race is a social con- construct don't believe it ourselves. I think a lot of us academics, um, and this is one of the things that got me thinking about race reductionism as a concept, I've heard so many times from from fellow academics, you know, everyone knows that race is a social construct. Yeah. And they follow it with, but then race takes on a life of its own. Well, that's that doesn't that means it's not really a social construct, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're essentializing race and imputing to it qualities that an ideology with a large um, you know, cultural imprint can't have. Um, in keeping with the point that I made previously. Because I know I've actually been called a, a class essentialist because one of the things that I argue against is racial essentialism, mm-hmm. imputing to, to qualities um, that imputing qualities to this ideology that an ideology can't have, the notion right. that it right. can exist apart from political economy. And I've been perplexed by the charge of, um, of, of, of class essentialism because obviously if I'm suggesting that race is a vehicle not just for treating inequalities as if they are natural um, when they are actually these inequalities are actually a product of social relations um, but that that process functions purposefully at at, at many points anyway um, ex- sometimes explicitly to keep people apart so that they can never mobilize against you know the sources of their exploitation then I can't possibly be arguing if that's if that's what I'm saying that race does. I can't possibly be arguing that class mobilization is natural, right? Um, there's no political mobilization. There's no political organizing that comes naturally. It's, it's the product of work. But insistence that racial groups are real mm-hmm. through essentialist framework. So we're getting to the question that uh, the answer uh, to the question that you're looking <laughs> at, to be clear. 
uh, insisting that racial groups are real comes to, by way of identity frameworks, comes to reinforce the notion or, or impute against you those groups qualities that social constructs can't have, but it does so ironically with a patina of progressivism in a way that continues to ensure that we can never move forward against the forces that disadvantage black people and brown people disproportionately, but that also disadvantage whites. So that said, the social constructiveness of race um, makes, you know, refers to the view that racial groups are not biological groups. Most anthropologists and most biologists will tell you that racial groups are not biological groups. Ancestry DNA would disagree, but they are selling Nazi race science as a gift for dad on Father's Day, so I really don't care what Ancestry DNA has to say about this, to be honest. But, but in the simplest terms, the reason that racial groups aren't biological categories, and this isn't a full rich explanation for why they aren't biological groups, is they're just too damn big to be mm -hmm. biological groups, right? I mean, racial groups are literally they're continental groups. Yeah. Uh, so it presumes that Europeans have characteristics, you know, inherent characteristics at the level of the continent that distinguish them from Africans and Asians and, and, and the like. And that can't be a thing because people aren't having sex between South Africa and Algeria, right? Yeah. Or, or between Ghana um, and Eritrea, right? Or Ethiopia. Um, so it can't really be a thing. So the social constructivist of race then presumes that proceeds from the view that I think is demonstrated by the historical record that race is an invention uh, that is the product of colonization and slavery intended to explain why certain groups are exceptional, why certain groups find themselves in the crosshairs, passive voice of often enough quite horrific exploitation or worse yet genocide, right? Mm -hmm. And in the context of American liberalism, you really do need an explanation for it. You don't really need an explanation for that in the 1500s because life was terrible for everybody in, in, in Europe in the 1500s who wasn't nobility. Um, it would be horrible to be a peasant in England in the 1500s or 1600s mm -hmm. or an indentured servant in the Americas in the 1500s and 1600s. But so you don't really need an involved explanation for exceptional status, because honestly, I mean, the, the position of African slaves was certainly worse than the position of indentured servants, but they're variations on a theme, right? So of, of unfree labor. Yeah. But with the rise of liberalism, you do need an explanation and you need a coherent explanation uh, by the end of the 18th century. And that's what race is. Um, if it's an ideology, then one more time, it changes over time. Mm -hmm. All ideologies do. Um, so it's not really the same. Race as an ideological construct isn't the same in 2022 as it was in 1922. I think mm -hmm. probably For most sure. Americans understand today that Southern Europeans and East Europeans are white, mm -hmm. right, and, and Jews. But um, 100 years ago, I think most Americans didn't see those groups as, as white, right? So that's a small ball example of how race has changed. And for that matter, 50 years ago, you couldn't imagine a biracial man, let alone one named Barack Hussein Obama, being elected president of the United States. I don't even think, even think 20 years ago you could, right? So once again, that's illustrative of how the ideology change, changes. But the ideology continues to function to um, try to, to explain why inequalities exist in a society 
for reasons other than capitalism. And it comes down, as I said earlier, to the alleged intrinsic qualities of the group. And if it's the intrinsic qualities of the group, then it's not just the natural order of things, but because it's the natural order of things, you can't change it. Yeah. It just is what it is, right? So blacks are permanently on the bottom um, and, and American Indians, right? And Hispanics are right there with them. Um, and whites get to be middle top, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's just how it is. And what's great about that from a hegemonic standpoint on the air quotes matter a lot is that it not only lends itself to divisions that make it impossible to mobilize against the sources of inequality, but it does so by taking attention away from the role of the social relations in shaping these inequalities, which actually in most instances, certainly post-emancipation, I can't think of any social relations, negative social relations post-emancipation that impacted blacks in the United States that didn't impact some whites in the United States and some significant number of whites. Um, insisting, of course, that race is a social construct, this is the last thing I'll say, because I want to make sure that I've answered the question, um, and I still may not have, but, but insisting that race is a social construct, as you said, doesn't mean that racism isn't real uh, and that anti-racist policies aren't necessary. But one thing that's really important for people to keep in mind is what, as we have actually done anti-racist policies since at least the 1960s, and they have improved the lives of many black Americans, myself among them, but they've been incapable of improving the lives of many more black Americans because it's not just racism that was responsible even in the 1960s for racial disparities. It was also changes that took place in American political economy. Right. So did I get at the question? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You've also, you've raised the intellectual bar of our podcast. Like, <laughs> so um, high, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so one of the things that you're teasing out both in this conversation and also in your book, I think, is that, or at least one of the things that I was really like coming to when I was reading your book and also something that I've thought about a bunch in the past couple of years is that race reductionists um, and like racial identitarians in general um, exist on both the sort of like liberal left and the right. And in fact, they're, they're united by an understanding of, right, of race as a biologically real, ontologically significant phenomenon in the world, right? Um, and so it's easy to see, I think for most people, it's easy to see why that would be um, useful for like people on the far right um, and for like, you know, capitalists, you know, um, to, you know, uh, have a tool in order to like hyper exploit a certain segment of the population and so on and so forth. I think one, one thing that a lot of people struggle with, um, especially in the social justice worlds that we are, you know, coming out of is the idea that people on the leftish who think of themselves as, you know, being on the left um, and yet are race reductionists, like, why don't they see themselves as conservatives? Basically, why do they see themselves as being on the left if, as you argue, race reductionism is fundamentally kind of a, um, a conservative or neoliberal project? Like, why don't they see themselves as being on the right then? I think that's a great question. And I think there are a couple of things at play. Um, one, maybe cause for a little optimism and one that reflects some deep-seated cynicism of, of my own. I think one reason that such individuals don't see themselves as being guilty of racism related to the fact that I, I that there are a lot of definitions of racism and I think most people mm -hmm. think of racism uh, uh, as a form of, of targeted hatred which 
I don't think racism implies that at all, right? I mean, I, I would again insist that what racism implies is a belief that blacks, whites, Asians, and whoever else we classify as different races are profoundly different beings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as I've long put it since my 20s, um, at the latest, that there there is a stratum of well-meaning liberals who, like their conservative counterparts, see blacks as the forever unknowable exotic other, right? And they tend to think of black people as on some level and, and brown people um, as well as something on the spectrum of bees, ants, or the xenomorphs from the Aliens franchise. But, um, and those people, many of them, uh, at least those who are liberals, certainly are coming at it from, uh, with the best of intentions. But, you know, the road to hell is paved with, in, with good intentions, right? But, but again, I mean, that doesn't sound like a setup for a positive <laughs> take on this. <laughs> Isn't that positive from my vantage point? But, but appreciating where people understand themselves to be coming from, I think, I hate to say it, if you understand the problems as being owed to racism and you think of racism in some way as a problem of attitudes, and it, and it is, right? And racism is in, in, in some ways, I think, fundamentally a problem of attitude. But if, but if you reduce the problem of disparities, specifically, mm -hmm. I should say, to racism and racism as attitude, that's a relatively easy fix, right? I mean, it's a hell of a lot easier than doing the kind of work that one has to do, and by which I mean the political organizing, that one would have to do to redress material disparities in a more appropriate way, um, like fighting for a right to national health care, mm -hmm. uh, fighting for a right to affordable housing, um, fighting for a right to a job and a living wage, right? All of which were things that Americans 70 years ago, 70, 75 years ago, thought were appropriate. They don't anymore. Um, though we did get that flash, you know, 20, between 2016 and 2020, um, where it made plain that many Americans were tilted in that direction, which is cause for optimism. But again, I think that those people, some the, on, on the positive end, um, with caveat, of course, it seems like something if the problems are racism, period, then that seems like something that's doable mm -hmm. um, and much, much, and, and doable in your lifetime, uh, practically. On the negative side, um, oh, and there's, there's one other sort of bridge between the positive and the purely negative. It's also self-affirming for a certain type of anti-racist. Uh, you can be sort of smugly self-affirmed by the fact that you voted for Obama. You can be smugly self-affirmed by the fact that you wear a Black Lives Matter pen, mm -hmm. right? Or that you bought ice cream for your Black coworker or whatever. You can feel good about yourself as being part of the solution. But, I mean, you think about those kinds of examples, and those are real examples of real people I know who patted themselves on the back for their liberal decency. What does that do for anybody? It doesn't do anything for anybody any more than deciding that, I don't know, this is, this is probably not gonna, gonna play with a lot of viewers, um, as an individual that you're gonna boycott a shitty store. As an individual, if you boycott a shitty store, you have made yourself feel good, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't change the shitty store's practices at all, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of qualified positive end, again, which, which comes down to it's easy. The purely negative um, take that I have on, or I should say cynical, is a lot of those people are racist anyway. And what happens with the contemporary, see, I told you that was <laughs> that was gonna be really cynical. 
I don't mean that in a they were born to be racist kind of way, but I've I've certainly observed. I could pick on Hillary Clinton as a good example, but but her stuff is performative. So and we know it's performative anyway. I've I've known individuals um, who in the 1990s, let's say, basically embraced the super predator line. You know, and these would be liberal individuals. And the super predator line, you know, is an outgrowth of underclass ideology, and it's that framework that I'd said is a kind of conservative expression, uh, unambiguous conservative expression of even liberal race reduction. Conservatives love that stuff, but but liberals, you saw versions of that in the Johnson administration, but you also saw in the conservative Clinton years, that being what race was about, right? I mean, it was about the super predators. Well, again, I know people who are fellow Gen Xers or whatever, uh, who were all about that super predator stuff, right? Um, all about underclass ideology. They voted for Obama in 2008 because of that too, right? Because Obama wasn't afraid to tell poor black people that they needed to stop eating Popeyes for breakfast and, and to pull their pants up and read a book, right? I don't know how that's courageous. I don't know how pissing on poor black people mm -hmm. uh, is, is a sign that one is courageous, but apparently in some liberal quarters it is. Some of these same individuals who I know who embraced underclass ideology through 2012, at least, by the Trump election had flipped and racism, they discovered racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and of course, what happens is their conceptual lens doesn't change at all because their discovery of racism basically just puts a positive spin yeah. on the fucked up politics they had in the 90s because now, you know, dead horse, um, how they look at racism is an original sin, right? It's just, it, it is, their, their view of racism, I would say, is actually racist. It's an inborn, inborn set of attitudes. Likewise, they insist, of course, that poor and working class whites, you know, are responsible for these these ills. And if, and um, more to the point, since there is a kind of evangelical dimension to, I think, a lot of contemporary anti-racism, even even when people even even when the contemporary anti-racists are agnostic or atheists, there's still an evangelical mm -hmm. quality to it. It is the vehicle for self-affirmation, as I've said before. Um, to coalesce around that kind of anti-racist framework. But again, I mean, I, I think the basic point is that the framework doesn't change in terms of their understanding of inequality. In one period, in the Clinton years, let's say, the problem was the cultural deficiencies of poor Black people. And that's, that's where the inequalities, the disparities came from. That's why all those Black men in particular were in prison and the like. Today, the problem is still race um, in the form of a racist understanding of racism, the source of the inequalities are um, ingrained prejudices. So the frame- right. It's like, the, it's like the, the cultural deficiencies of white people now. Um, it's a cultural deficiency and, of white people. Oh, and sorry. Like in, sorry, yeah, like it's just interesting. And like in both cases, you know, um, it was like understood to be cultural, but really treated as though it were completely essential, you know? Right. And there's there's one other piece to it, too, that's that's a source of affirmation with contemporary anti-racism training, like from, you know, my my favorite whipping boy for this stuff is is Robin DiAngelo, of course, um, Good, I mean, for yeah. pretty obvious reasons, who I tend to think of as the real life Miss Morello from Everybody Hates Chris, who also had the best of intentions and was a genius sitcom character. But ooh, nobody should take their cues for how to deal with other people from her. 
Um, I think a lot of contemporary anti-racism uh, ideology or frameworks, intersectionality, I think, ends up licensing this, um, despite the best of intentions of many practitioners, of course, proceed from the view, as I've said previously, that there is something essentially different about Black people as human beings, um, or Hispanic people, or Asian people, you, you name it, right? That mm -hmm. there's something, again, intrinsically different about all of these people. And it's a pluralist framework. This is, a, this is basically, you know, what I talk about in the book is ethnic pluralism just updated, right. that the key is to embrace our differences as our strengths. Mm -hmm. And that racists reject our differences as, as strengths and see our differences as weaknesses. But liberals see our inborn racial differences as our strengths. And what that means is, again, and this is why it's so easy and so attractive, I think, for a lot of people to attach themselves to these kind of anti-racist frameworks. What that, that means practically is it's racism with a positive spin. Yeah. Totally. We've seen this over and over again, right? It's like people will just like come up with like a list of racist tropes about various populations and then be like, but it's, it's good. It's good. You yep. know, and, and they'll just be like, you know, indigenous people are like closer to the earth or like whatever. And I'm like, that's so racist. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to to spin that out for us. Um, totally. So I feel like the next question is like, you basically answered it, but I want to pull it out more explicitly. So with a lot of this, um, this race reductionist ideology that's quite popular these days, it seems to be quite embraced by, for example, like HR departments. And, um, you know, we will have situations where like Amazon is saying like, you know, Black Lives Matter and like posting things about Black Lives Matter while simultaneously trying to shut down like Chris Malls and like the Amazon labor um, union. And so why is it in your view that capital seems to love race reductionism? Like what is going on there? they've always loved it um i mean and now you know they love it in an inclusive way but they loved <laughs> race reductionism in an exclusive way for a very right. long time right and it, it certainly was the case this is a nice thing about being a historian um <laughs> is that you get to look back in time and, and see how fucked up people were um and in a different time in a bygone era it was legal for them to be fucked up Right. And explicit about it. So if you go back, you know, 100 years and you don't have to go back that far, employers in their personnel departments, right, which is what HR used to be called, um, had often enough what when in one instance, a very famous incident um, of a firm in Pittsburgh, what they called a racial adaptability chart. And what the racial adaptability chart did is it broke down different ethnic racial groups and it, and it was racial groups, but a lot of these racial groups are groups that we would consider to be ethnic. Like they literally made a difference, a distinction and a racial adaptability chart between French Canadians and British Canadians, right? Mm -hmm. Go figure. But anyway, um, and the, the firm insisted that members of different racial groups were good or bad at different kinds of jobs, right? Because of their intrinsic qualities. Mm -hmm. right? So, not surprisingly, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are good at pretty much everything. Um, but Blacks, you know, were presumed to be in this particular chart, good at all the jobs that required strength and speed, but mm -hmm. bad at all the jobs that required, um, uh, you know, precision uh, or intelligence, right? And interestingly enough, because this is like 19, this particular um, example that I'm thinking of is from the mid-1920s. 
Jews were bad at everything, right? Because anti-Semitism was wild in you know the mid nineteen twenties in, in the United States, right? But that is a race reductionist framework, right? It's mm-hmm. a racist framework. Personnel departments, even when they become HR departments, improve in many ways, you know, thanks to civil rights legislation and interestingly enough, labor law before that. But nevertheless, what there is for them to draw from uh, off the shelf in terms of contemporary, you know, understandings of how the world works um, is race. So in a sense, you know, they've always liked it. And I don't want to imply that it's the same thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a variation on the same theme because in both the old timey times, 100 years ago or less, and today, what you get is a vision of inequality that centers on the character traits of people rather than the structural sources of inequality. And in the HR framework, diversity has been very popular since at least the 1990s. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a fun disclosure. My mom was actually an HR executive. Okay. Uh, she's not my source, so <laughs> she can disavow me. On this, and it's fine. I won't be offended at all. She can even disown me for this, but but she won't need to because she's to be clear, she's definitely not not my source on that. But again, going back to the 1990s, HR departments had really firmly embraced diversity. And among the things that happens when HR departments embrace diversity, there's a great book on this by a sociologist named Frank Dobbin, and I won't do him justice in my characterization of this because I won't draw entirely from him. But among the things that was appealing to them about diversity as a construct was a kind of market-oriented uh, pluralism. And so within the HR frame, what's great about diversity and the race reductionism that's baked into diversity by that point is that hiring a black woman would mean that you hired someone who could represent, there are something like 42 million blacks in the United States or something like that, right? So let's say 25 million people, something like mm-hmm. black women, if not black women and men, at the very least, this one black hire, black female hire, uh, can help you plug into a market of 25 million people, right? And there's an essentialist framework there um, that, again, presumes that blacks, Hispanics, whatever their sex, Asians, again, whatever their sex, women, whatever their race, have these intrinsic qualities that allow you to tap into markets. So it really functions, at least at the level of the HR department, narrowly as a vehicle for sort of rationalizing corporatist understandings of the world along racialist lines. It's consistent with a certain model of business efficiency, but it's a racist model of business efficiency centered on inclusion. Um, and it, and frankly, it's pretty creepy. Now, one of the things that's creepy, if you'll indulge me, indulge me for a second, mm-hmm. uh, is that I've actually always embraced diversity. Well, at least as long as I've been aware of it as a construct, which would take me back to when I was probably about 14 or something like that. And the model of diversity that that I was introduced to was very different. It was actually much more like what you get out of the Brown decision. And um, though no one used the term diversity in 1954, right? But, but the purpose, one of the elements of the Brown decision was that segregation fostered racial animus. Uh, in the aggregate, because the problem with with segregation was it wasn't just that it made black people feel bad about themselves, feel badly about themselves. That's definitely a part of it. But many argued around that time and even earlier that it sort of nurtured in whites a kind of despotism <laughs> um, and 
and that that separation between the races ultimately was fertile ground in which stereotypes mm-hmm. and hostilities, you know, were nurtured and would eventually blossom. For sure. And and in the long run, the key to ending that that kind of um, anti-democratic worldview that racists would have is to bring people from different backgrounds together uh, and to engage in common shared experiences that are positive at the very least. And that process of positive interactions would ultimately chip away at ignorant stereotypes. Now, that's actually the vision of diversity that I firmly embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's even consistent with my own life experience. Um, I grew up between Southwest Atlanta, Georgia, and New Haven, Connecticut. And Atlanta is really segregated, especially mm-hmm. then. Uh, so I didn't even know any white people until I was somewhere between 12 and 14. So I thought all kinds of crazy stuff about white people, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody, all of my peers, none of whom knew white people either, because teachers don't count. <laughs> teachers aren't people, right? So, right, right. Um, but we, none of us had any white peers. But all of my peers said these crazy things about, in Atlanta, said these crazy things about white people. So they had to be true, right? Because everyone I knew believed them. And then when I moved to a place where I ended up having white teammates, mm-hmm. um, white classmates in New Haven, Connecticut, I came to realize that a lot of that, well, all of those crazy things that I had thought were true about white people were insane, right? It was just nutty <laughs> bullshit. Um, so, so that really reinforced my embrace of that model of diversity. Mm-hmm. But by the 90s, easy, the model of diversity that took hold is this essentialist model. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, Okay, so listen, you don't explicitly draw this connection in your book, but I couldn't help notice it when I was reading it, that um, a lot of the implications of race reductionism, as you lay them out in the book, you know, for example, the implication that um, class is mostly meaningless as a motor of history, uh, that race is instead the main driver, uh, the implication that cross-racial alliance is basically impossible, um, the implication that racism can't ever really be eradicated. You can sort of like pick at it, but it's just always going to be there. Um, there, all these implications are also shared by Afro-pessimism. And I was wondering if you see a connection between race reductionism and Afro-pessimism, or if that's not something that you really uh, think about. It's something I've been forced to think about more recently. <laughs> um, because I'll, I'll tell you this, um, it'll be a, probably a little too much wind up for you. When I originally wrote Toward Freedom, chapter four was not supposed to be Obama and Coates. Okay. When, and I shouldn't say when I originally wrote it, when, when Burso contacted me about doing this book after they had read the 2015 Jacobin essay, my original game plan was to have a chapter on Obama and Ben Carson. And the reason that I didn't want to write on, well, I thought there was actually an interesting overlap between Obama and Ben Carson that I don't need to get into. And so I thought that was, I was intrigued by that, having read some things about Ben Carson uh, as kind of the Obama's evil twin, basically, is, is how I kind of thought of him. And uh, the good twin wasn't that great either. But, but anyway, so when a reason that I was invested in writing on Obama and Ben Carson was that that same year, 2015, I got a, a couple of invitations to write on Tanisha Coates. And I declined them because the last thing I wanted to do was to write on Tani C. Coates because one, people loved him and I was going to be hated mm-hmm. if I wrote what I actually thought about Tani C. Coates. <laughs> and two, I actually want, just kind of figured he would go away. Right. Um, and was looking forward to that. 
What does that have to do with your question about Afro pessimism? I've ignored Afro pessimism. <laughs> I I was kind of hoping it would go away. I think it will. I I don't know um, if it'll go away for the good reasons that I would like it to go away. Um, but nevertheless, I, I I don't think that it's got long legs. But there is absolutely so so now though I can't ignore it. So I do have to think about it a bit more. And there is absolutely um, overlap between Afro-pessimism and um, the race reductionist framework that I describe. I mean, Afro-pessimism would fit within those parameters, even yeah. though I don't discuss it. Since Afro-pessimism, there's some elements of Afro-pessimism that actually perplex me as a black man. <laughs> um, and, and among them, the notion, I think this is what Frank Wilderson says, that the kind of natural relationship between blacks and whites is subordinate, where mm -hmm. blacks uh, are white slaves? I'm I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't co-sign that. Um, but more to the point, I don't think that Afro pessimism offers you a useful lens through which to explain not the things that that have that will happen in the future because we don't know that. But what we do know is what happened in the past, right. <laughs> and right. I think yeah. that Afro pessimism doesn't actually stand the smell test, if you will. When you look at the historical record, yeah. right? I mean, how can Afro-pessimism explain a, a, a major problem with Nicole Hannah-Jones's 1619, mm -hmm. her contribution to the 1619 project? I'm not condemning the 1619 project in its totality, but, but her contribution to the 1619 project is a kind of head-scratcher. The notion that the American Revolution actually was about extending slavery is kind of bizarre. If you look at what happens in the northern states during and following the American Revolution, I mean, they move to abolish slavery. If the northern states, and, and to be sure, the abolition of slavery that takes place in the northern states is not a paradise for black people. And in the states that um, abolish slavery gradually, unfreedom for black people, I mean, for a shrinking minority of black people, um, for sure, continued deep, fairly deep into the antebellum period. Right, until the 1840s, and I think in New Jersey, maybe 1860 or something like that. The last, there was, I think there was one still remaining black indentured servant. And the way that the um, uh, at gradual manumission uh, law in New Jersey worked is I think you went from a slave to an indentured servant, basically. So two different forms of, un, or an apprentice, whatever they would call it, but, but two different forms of unfreedom back to back. So, so again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the abolition of slavery that took place in the North was a paradise for black people, but it was an expression of the fact that the American Revolution was not fundamentally about the extension of slavery, right? Because, because the Northern states abolished slavery shaped by the natural rights ideology that drove the American, or at least informed the American Revolution. That's important, just keeping it historical, because if the Northern states didn't abolish slavery in 1860, the Northern states wouldn't have elected the anti-slavery Republican President Lincoln, which triggered the Civil War, which ultimately set the stage for actual abolition of slavery nationally and gives us Reconstruction, which wasn't all that it should have been. But nevertheless, that neither, so far, nothing that I've discussed is consistent with an Afro-pessimist framework. Yeah. You have to diminish the significance of some quite significant things, as many Afro-pessimists do. I know some insist that abolition was a non-event, which seems mm -hmm. peculiar to me. That's that something you can only say from the perch of liberty, right? Yeah. <laughs> With Absolutely. unfreedom 
way back in the rear view mirror. So far back, you can't really conceptualize it. And when you make your way to the, to the populist movement after that, right, that's not consistent with Afro-pessimism at the end of the 19th century. What happens during and around the New Deal with the popular front is not consistent with Afro-pessimism. And of course, if Afro-pessimism were correct, well, what the fuck happened in the civil rights movement? Why, why are there now, let's say, I'll just keep it narrowly on my guild for a reason that I won't state explicitly. How did all these black and brown people who are certainly underrepresented in academia, there's no question about that, mm -hmm. but how they end up with these cool jobs <laughs> and mm -hmm. with big platforms? Mm -hmm. Afro-pessimism is fundamentally correct. So I don't get it. Honestly, I think you have to ignore lots of actual stuff on the ground um, and things that really did happen. You certainly have to minimize them. But I think in some instances, you have to imagine that the 13th Amendment didn't end slavery uh, and that, that instead it was the Emancipation Proclamation as mm -hmm. events by Juneteenth. Um, but you, you have to engage in some real twists and turns to make Afro-pessimism work, I think. Thanks for engaging with the Afro-pessimism question. I, I actually think that it weirdly underlies a lot of like race discourse in social justice culture, but people are often unaware of the roots of what they're saying because they aren't yeah. necessarily academics and they're just kind of like online um, posting and reposting. But a lot of these ideas, which are very like, they're not historical, they like completely ignore like historical changes, as you've just said, um, and they're very essentialist um and race reductionist um but yeah they're just kind of like upheld as like self-evidently true by a lot of people so as much as we also find afropessimism very annoying we kind of like to draw it out because we want people to have an awareness that this is kind of the um the intellectual lineage that they're basing a lot of their ideas in even if they're unaware that that's what's happening yeah. um but yeah so your book focuses mostly on race reductionism as it pertains to Black Americans. Um, do you see race reductionism playing out in other contexts, either inside or outside of the United States? And we're particularly interested in this just because we are in Canada. I know, but I wouldn't be informed enough to speak on this. Mm -hmm. But I, I know from entreaties that I've gotten from um, journalists and, and scholars in France and um, England, as well as Canada, that race reductionist models have come to inform, um, you know, progressive social movements mm -hmm. in Western Europe and Canada. Uh, I I would suggest that, um, and again, I wouldn't be able to to give a richly detailed answer. That's an expression of the fact that among the things that America exports quite successfully around the globe is our fucked up culture. <laughs> um, right, fucking canceled. So I get to drop the F bomb. Yes, you do. Thank you. <laughs> for that, I, I appreciate. I feel so so free and liberated. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The f bomb is actually part of of my cultural heritage <laughs> from from the New York metro area. So I thank you for that. But um, but but yeah, I mean, I I think it's quite clearly illustrative of the fact that we do export our culture around the globe, um, through mass media, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and American academics uh have a disproportionate impact, and I think. You know, among the reasons that American academics have had a disproportionate impact in Western Europe and Canada it really comes down to the sway of neoliberalism, right? I mean, neoliberalism doesn't begin in the United States, obviously begins in England. But, you know, the United States is England on steroids uh, in terms of 
had a 20th century and now early 21st century imperial powers. So that's mm-hmm. the U.S. way more than England, and they are variations on the same theme. And 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 I make the point that it's an outgrowth of neoliberalism and the neoliberal political project, because the beauty of race reductionism, as I've said before, is it takes attention away from capitalism's fundamental contribution to what we think of as racial inequality. It also, though, functions as a vehicle for, as as part of that project, for ensuring that it's impossible for working people who are being ground down by you know, the, the capitalist death machine is, is how I think of it at, at this point, mm-hmm. to mobilize politically. Like, what do you do with an Afro-pessimist framework, let's say? Yeah. Um, how do, if, if Black people, while on the one hand, there are more Black Americans in the United States than there are human beings in Canada. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the U.S. in terms of population is way bigger than Canada. Mm-hmm. So Blacks are only 13% of the total population. How is it possible in a nation where the minority group um, that Afro-pessimism can speak to is, is a very small minority group, right? How would it be possible to mobilize a political, counter, a political movement capable of countering the roots of mass incarceration, or which impact Black people disproportionately, or impacts Black people disproportionately, or homelessness? or poverty, all of these things that impact black people, police murders, if you only focus on the 13%, right? And when you look at things like the inmate population, um, or for that matter, police murders or civilian murders at the hands of police, blacks are always overrepresented, but they're never the majority. And we forego the possibility Mm. of mobilizing against the carceral state effectively by insisting that this is a race problem, when in fact, there's no there's no connection between the Thirteenth Amendment's felony exception clause and mass incarceration in the United States. I took it back to the U.S. I'm sorry, I just realized that, but I am an American historian, so that's <laughs> yeah. no, go ahead. Out of my wheelhouse, but there's there's no connection between that. The economic function of slavery um, is profoundly different from what mass incarceration is about. But there is an economic function to mass incarceration, and it's warehousing, you know, the poor and under unemployed and underemployed, right? Right. Um, I think that's true in Canada. <laughs> I, I think that's true in France. I think that's true in England. Um, if you insist, though, that what's happening, e- even if black and brown people are disproportionately represented in the categories that you don't want to be represented in, still, the fundamental issue that's at play is going to be some expression of the inequalities that are generated by capitalism in all those states and, and others. But by insisting, again, that the problem is race and not capitalism, you can't mobilize against that effectively. And instead, what you can get is sort of symbolic gestures. You can get, you know, anti-racism or sensitivity training or whatever you want to call it for cops. Mm -hmm. Um, You can actually um, maybe train police officers better to to, to better be be capable, to be more effective at distinguishing between middle class and upper class blacks in one column. (laughs) <laughs> and or right i mean it's a horrible framework but i think that you could get that right yeah. um because the fundamental problem with racial profiling um or or mass incarceration and, and all that stuff is where someone like michelle alexander would say that those white people who get incarcerated or killed by police or whatever 
that those white people are the victims, they're, they're collateral damage in a war on black people. What I would say, and this is more like what W.E.B. Du Bois would have said, and uh, a number of generations of, of black scholars and reformers, many of whom I'm critical of for what it's worth, but they're onto something. I would say if you're committed to a collateral damage metaphor, mm-hmm. middle class and upper class blacks are collateral damage in a war on poor people. Um, and so again, you could train police officers to better right. distinguish like they do effectively for white people right. between upper class and poor, but is that going to change anything practically? Not really. I mean, it's not going to change anything for the inmate population. It'll change things for black people who otherwise got harassed by the cops, despite being investment bankers. Yeah. But, and that's something, but again, I mean, I, I think that the appeal of, of this kind of framework globally is bound up or at least in the Western world, is bound up with neoliberalism uh, and um, the sort of escape hatches that race reductionism, if you will, provides in making sense of inequalities. Because we did stop, last thing I'll say, my wife teases me, she says, you don't talk just in paragraph form, you talk in essay form. (laughs) So she says it with love, um, at least. So, but I don't know that everybody everybody feels that way. But, But anyway, um, with with this stuff, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not capable of delivering for poor and working class black people, right? And it's um, is capable, as I was saying, uh, alluding to previously, of delivering for black people like me. And I'll take it. <laughs> um, I, I'll take more. Why not? Mm-hmm. But is that what progressive politics is supposed to be yeah. about? Ensuring that 13, 13% of every class tier is black or 16% of every class here is Hispanic, if more and more people, regardless of race, are actually living in poverty yeah. <laughs> or um, in some form of precarity. I, that doesn't seem very progressive to me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the in the interest of time, I think we're gonna skip a couple questions and just, uh, we, got, we got three more for you, okay? Um, but yeah, this is, this is like intimately connected to what you were just saying. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I want to talk about how the the kind of online social justice left, you know, like these people who all sincerely believe themselves to be leftists, right? Um, within that space, class conscious understandings of race and racism like yours are highly censored, right? Um, you're, they, they basically don't appear on like, let's say Instagram. Um, um, and they're usually considered by the people, the denizens of that world to be at best delusional, um, at worst expressions of white supremacy, actually. And I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think that so many people who consider themselves not just progressives, but leftists, right, um, are so opposed to your ideas and the ideas of, of people um, like you? Well, I mean, I think at least as it pertains to me, it's complicated because um, to my surprise, I got a ton of fan mail. <laughs> so, um, and, and again, as I said a while back, I was afraid to write what was chapter four mm-hmm. of Toward Freedom, but it just was what it was. I had to write it. Yeah. Um, and was pleasantly surprised uh, by the response that I got from academics, but also uh, a good number of activists uh, as well. I, I suspect then that online spaces um, are unique. Uh, and in fact, someone very close to me who works as a communications director had informed me 
uh, and, I, and I would say this person who's close to me works as a communications director is, is some part propagandist by trade, right? Because this person works for um, an organization uh, and an organization's communications director is on some level a propagandist. And I don't mean that in a negative way, it just is what it is. But I was informed by that person um, of the demographics on Twitter. And Twitter, interesting enough, the big four social media platforms is the least used of the big four, which surprised me given how much traction it gets mm. in the popular discourse, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, something like that. I think that's the order. Um, but anyway, and I was also informed that the average Twitter user's, user's age is surprisingly old, mm -hmm. um, surprising which really yeah. threw me off. It was in the 40s, yeah. um, and they tended to be female and tilt Democrat, interestingly enough, too. Mm -hmm. And this is all to say that I think people should pay a lot less attention to what's happening in social media in some ways. I understand the importance of social media. I use it, not Twitter. I mean, like all academics, I suffer for some degree of self-loathing, but not that much. Um, but and, and certainly not that kind. But anyway, um, I think that people should should take what happens in social media with a major grain of salt, because I'll put it this way. My dad did not name me to Ray Fanon Reed because he was some sort of liberal, right? My, my dad was, um, as a young man, uh, my dad's 23 and a half years older than I am. So as a, as a young man, he was a Marxist. Um, he was in the sort of black power end of Marxism, right? And then moved on from that um, while continuing to be a Marxist, but he moved on from the the black power end of it. And one of the, the useful things about having been, been raised by people who were politic, who were actually politically engaged in the civil rights movement. My father's father was a, was also actively politically engaged um, in the, in the, in um, the popular front, right. In the thirties and forties. Um, one of the nice things about that is you understand that there are these people who are called provocateurs. Uh, and those provocateurs sometimes work for the FBI, they work for local law enforcement, they're just assholes who, <laughs> who are trying to undermine your project. In the old timey times before there was social media, you actually had to have a paid professional with some skills maybe to um, insert him herself into the left wing organization mm -hmm. that they were trying to destroy from within. You don't have to do that on social media. You have some paid functionary, you don't even have to pay him that much money to just say incendiary bullshit, right? Um, and to basically spread disinformation uh, on some level. And I think this is to say that in those social media spaces, I don't know that's the clearest, if that's the clearest window onto how people respond to these arguments. Having said that, I know what you're talking about, right? But I, but I suspect that, again, in some instances what's happening is that there are provocateurs and that people who aren't provocateurs are reading the provocateurs, but they're not reading me. <laughs> they're not reading mm -hmm. Cedric Johnson. They're not reading Barbara Fields. They're not reading Preston yeah. Smith, Adolph Reed, whatever. They're reading the provocateurs take on us and yeah. maybe a poll quote. But, and if they do glance at anything that I've read, I've written, um, or other people in, in my in the orbit that I share, at best they're sort of glancing and reading the poll quotes. Because I, I I'll put it this way, 
um, again, in keeping with the essay format of my uh, speaking patterns. I had written an essay in um, 2020 on Jess LaBombalera, if you mm -hmm. remember her, Jessica. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was probably the most popular thing I've ever written in my life, to my surprise. Um, and I think, I think Bhaskar told me, a Jacobin told me that in the first two weeks, I got like 100,000 shares or something. Right. It was crazy. But I saw a lot of people who liked that, that piece, who hate everything else, who claim to right. hate everything else that I've written. It's the same fucking argument. Right. Literally <laughs> the same fucking argument just applied to some racist white lady. Who yeah. is a, you know, and I don't mean that as, as she's a bad person. Yeah. I mean, this white woman who exoticized black people and took on an ex a persona of an exoticized black person. That's what I mean when I say racist white. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but again, it's just the same argument applied to this instance. I've never denied this, that there are people who are racist. But I hear that I have, that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I've never denied it's consequential. It's nowhere in my my written work, but I hear that I have, and I hear that I have by way of people who spend too much of their their life living in a non-existent space of, that is Twitter, mm -hmm. right? A, not alive to the fact that that's not a platform that really lends itself to reasoned discourse, partly because of provocateurs, um, and. Partly because people tend not to read online stuff anyway, just kind of glance through it. And partly because Twitter and other social media platforms are really sort of vehicles for personal self-promotion, which is why I had a Twitter account for two weeks, 10 years ago, because mm -hmm. that's what I saw. I was really turned off by all the self-promotion that I saw on Twitter. And I thought, well, I got a captive audience a couple of days a week in the classroom and I write stuff that's published, so I don't, I don't need to bother with this. But nevertheless, that's that's my take on it. They don't really read the stuff, right? That's the thing. Yeah, I it's interesting, like because I'm unfortunately extremely online, and I have like a high. And following. I thank you for your service. Yeah, it's not it's not great, but I'm trying to bring some of these ideas into that space, you know. Um, and when I basically, you know, paraphrase the things that I have learned from scholars such as yourself and your father and like the field sisters, Cedric Johnson, like this school of like anti-essentialist, um, like historical understandings of race and racism, people just straight up call me a white supremacist. Right. Um, and like, it's, people are so hostile about it and they yeah. genuinely seem to have no understanding that this is, first of all, somebody accused me of inventing a new definition of racism when I said that race oh, yeah. was a social construct. And I was like, I did not invent that. And the <laughs> idea that people think that I personally invented that, it just shows that people's exposure to these ideas is so, so limited. Um, and I think part of it too, is that people have such a low attention span that they're able to read like a tweet, but they're not reading you know, like a full article, which is why I think interviews are good too in podcasts. And I'm always like sharing the Jacobin show and trying to get people to like actually listen to some conversations, which might be easier to get these ideas yeah. um, going. But it's it's pretty upsetting how hostile people are to this um, to this way of thinking and also the way in which these, you know, presumably well-meaning people who want to be opposing racism are quite literally reproducing racism by relying on like essentialist um scripts about race so um thank you for your service in, uh, <laughs> in all of this 
I'm, I'm also just reminded real quick, like of one time Clementine shared a post that was like, here are like a bunch of, you know, like uh, materialist thinkers about race that you can like look up and like, they're very interesting. You should just check it out. And, you know, she included like you and all the people she just listed. Um, and people were just like messaging, being like, oh being like, oh, like I searched them on Instagram and I can't find them. Like, I can't what are they? find their like, Instagram handles. And I was like, these are scholars and organizers. You <laughs> have to get off Instagram to find them. They're not on Instagram. Yeah. Instagram uh, is the creepiest thing in the world, I think. I mean, it, TikTok is Instagram with pretensions, from what right. I can tell. But I, a friend of mine uh, in the during the lockdown suggested that I get an IG account because I'm, you know, a failed virtuoso guitarist, right? So I'm a, a guitar player and hobbyist, and I follow guitar players. Yeah. Blah blah blah. And she said you should go on IG to follow some of your favorite guitarists. I knew a number of them who I, you know, follow on YouTube had IG account, so I go on it. I won't get into the details, but that algorithm is the devil. Um, and and the devilish nature of that algorithm made plain to me that um, that, that platform is toxic, <laughs> um, if, in part because it comes down to the worst, crassest form of self-promotion. Mm -hmm. uh, it And again, TikTok, I think, is just IG with pretensions. And I've let me beat on TikTok for one second. Too many of my students get their sense of history from TikTok. Mm -hmm. Worse than that, I've gathered, because we teach a lot of public school teachers or would-be public school teachers, too many public school teachers yeah. are getting their sense of history from TikTok. There's no way you can condense something like mass incarceration, like a historical account of mm -hmm. mass incarceration, into two and a half minutes. There's no way. Yeah. Um, and yet people will take these two and a half minute nuggets that are overly simplistic. They're pandering too, because you want likes and, and yeah. you want views, right? Um, for your brand, which means that those messages that you'll get between IG and, and TikTok are designed to pander to where people are, not to meet them where they are with an eye toward right. maybe giving them some new insights, yeah. but just to nurture where they are, right? Um, so it ends up really very much doing the devil's work in these two minute nuggets. It's, it's horrible stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I guess to just give you an easy question on the way out, we want to, um, like, I think a lot of people who hear these, these critiques, you know, like, we, like I was saying earlier, they, they are worried that we're saying that, that racism doesn't exist or that it has no um material effect on people's lives um but what you're saying is actually that like we actually need to do something different to positively benefit the vast majority of black and brown people and that just addressing racism on its own is not actually going to be what's going to help the most people right so from a policy perspective for you like what are a couple policies that you think would actually effectively contribute to the betterment of the quality of life of black and brown people in the United States, for example? Sure. Um, and let me just say from the outset, it's not even just that we should do something different. It's we should do something more. Mm -hmm. We've done anti-discrimination policies and they have helped. Mm -hmm. No question about that. But they can't fix the problem of capitalism. <laughs> That's literally why the Johnson administration was attracted to anti-racist policies, if you will, that would manifest in affirmative action, 
and certainly fair housing legislation, because they would be helpful, but they also function to sidestep the problems of late capitalism and how mm -hmm. those problems of late capitalism impacted black people. So it's not even just do something different, it's do something more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first thing that people need to hear, right? Because I've never argued, Cedric Johnson has never argued. I have some great Barbara Fields anecdotes from when I TA'd for her. I won't share them, at least without talking to her about them. But believe me, she knows racism is real. She really does. Ditto for, for my dad. So we've never argued that racism isn't real. We've never argued, as you said, that it isn't consequential. We've never argued against the value of policies that we as black people have benefited from mm -hmm. that are anti-racist policies. But instead, our basic argument has been those policies, as important as they are, just aren't sufficient. Um, and so what most of us, I think all of us propose, is un in addition to anti-discrimination policies, we propose universal redistributive policies. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, here's a couple of easy ways to appreciate what's going on here with us. It's certainly the case that um, white people benefited far more from the New Deal and the post-war um, liberal, expressions of post-war liberalism, right? Post-war welfare state. Whites benefited far more from those than blacks, right? Those two things. It's also the case that blacks benefited from both of them. But the idea that the reason that white people got houses, let's say, while black people got apartment projects, which is not really an embellishment of what happened immediately after World War II, right? Not all white people got houses. But, but white people had access to state-subsidized homes that blacks did not have access to in any large numbers before 1968. The idea, though, that in addition to FHA mortgages, that whites immediately following World War II were able to get those houses because of family wealth is actually kind of nuts. Because think about it, right? I mean, the explosion of homeownership happens in the U.S. after World War II. Just out of curiosity, to avoid my essay uh, speaking and make it more interactive, what preceded World War II? <laughs> like the Great Depression? The Great Depression. Where the fuck did the money come from then right. um, in terms of family wealth right. for whites to buy homes? They did have money to buy those homes because they had good jobs. Right. And they had good jobs because of the National Labor Relations Act. There's nothing inherently good about being a factory worker. What made those factory worker jobs good in the in the you know by the end of the 30s and certainly mm -hmm. the 40s and 50s was that they were unionized jobs, mm -hmm. right? So that access to good unionized jobs as well as those subsidized mortgages would be that blacks could not get access to, to the mortgages in particular before 1968 is where this explosion of white home homeownership came. When we talk about black homeownership today, when we talk about disparities in homeownership among blacks, what are we talking about, period? Family wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Family wealth. It makes a hell of a lot more sense, actually, to talk about jobs. Because right. ultimately, what's happened with white family wealth over the last you know, 40 plus years is it's declined, right? So the bottom 50% of white workers have 3% of white wealth. The bottom 50% of white workers have virtually no more wealth than their black counterparts. 97% of white wealth is held by the top 50% of workers. The racial wealth gap 
is really concentrated in the top 10% of white earners and the top 10% of black mm -hmm. earners. If you just focus on the racial wealth gap, if that's your metric for redressing racial inequalities, it would be easy to, to, to fix, relatively speaking, by simply focusing on enriching the top 10% of, of black workers to close right. that gap there. That's gonna close most of the racial wealth gap. Right. Studies have shown, you know, passive voice, but um, have shown, of course, that while affirmative action and anti-discrimination policies have, have helped, this is a study by sociologist Robert Manduka, so there's a name that should help, um, certainly helped to ensure that um, racial disparities didn't get worse. Uh, blacks actually did make economic gains in terms of the, um, I think the, the, the percentiles vis-a-vis um, -vis whites um, between 1968 and 2016. The problem is the reason that the objective gains didn't change much is that overall wages went down. If right. wages had remained constant between if wages continued to go up as they should have, you know, from 1968 to, you know, now, then most of the racial wealth gap would have been closed. Not all of it. There would still be one. That makes sense that there would still be one, though, because whites had a lot more wealth than black people. Right. But but nevertheless, most of the racial wealth gap could be closed that way by addressing in a fairly short time period by redressing wage inequality. And again, that's why that's why I began by pointing out that the first generation of you know, post-war homeowners didn't buy those homes uh, with family wealth. They bought the, those homes with the with the earnings mm -hmm. uh, and by extension, the wealth that they accumulated from those earnings that they were able to um, to 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 gain because of economic policy, right? Um, redistributive policy, principally <coughs> in the form of the National Labor Relations Act, which made it easier for people to join unions. Now, so that then gets us to policies that blacks would benefit from. <coughs> Efforts to raise the minimum wage, mm -hmm. of course, the living wage, are gonna benefit blacks disproportionately. A return to taxpayer funded free tuition-free public higher education mm -hmm. is going to benefit blacks disproportionately. Um, certainly, I would, I would make the case that we don't need simply um, efforts to make it easier for people to buy homes. I, I think actually what would be in order would be public housing, not public housing in the minds of most Americans, right? Because mm -hmm. most Americans reflexively and understandably think of public housing as shitty and um, a, a vehicle for basically warehousing poor people. Mm -hmm. After World War II, that is what public housing would become in the United States. During the Great Depression, even through World War II, public housing was complicated. A lot of public housing was actually very nice and was designed to be very nice and kind of mirrored what was going on in Europe at that same time period, right? And the, and the impetus for public housing was that the private housing market couldn't meet the needs of working class people, right? And if you think about it, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, real estate investors make more money by making upscale housing. They don't make any money <coughs> by making attractive, affordable housing for working class people. So those kinds of policies, mm -hmm. I think, would, would are, are what I would have in mind, rather than the kind of policies that are going to benefit black middle class or even upper class people disproportionately. And there's one other thing I want to say about this, but I have to hydrate. So give me one second. Yeah, take your time. <laughs>
Um, one of the things that's come come out in this sort of reparations moment is obviously a reimagining of what reparations be. Like, like that's the genius of Tani C. Coates. Mm -hmm. The genius, Tani C. Coates is basically a black nationalist who read Kenneth Jackson and Beryl Satter, right? And discovered fairly late in life redlining and its consequences. But the genius of, of, of Coates is that he soft peddled, he, he made a soft peddled case for reparations. So reparations could be anything. It could be anything mm -hmm. from an apology to a check and all points in between. That said, we've seen, of course, for the last of the last few years, liberal policymakers doing their part to rebrand, um, oftentimes already tried and inadequate policies, but certainly means tested and targeted programs that many of which have already existed in one form or another um, as reparations. And one of those is support for black entrepreneurs. And the thing that I think is fascinating about this is I've given talks to like, you know, young activists um, and uh, you know, very well-meaning, dedicated young people. I've had this exchange with students and, uh, you know, adults from all stripes of life, et cetera. I always, and here's the exchange, I always ask people the last few years, hey, did trickle down work? And so far, every time I've asked that question, because I guess I'm not putting it to investment bankers, but um, I'm putting it to middle class and working class people, right? But so far, every single person I put that question to said, no, trickle down mm -hmm. did not work, which is great. I'm glad that, that we're there now, finally. Right. But we're not totally there because then I always say, following that, okay, well, why do you think it's going to work for Black people? And they're like, huh? I said, what do you think it means to recast, to cast as reparations support for Black entrepreneurs? For that to be something on the spectrum of reparations, which it isn't, mm -hmm. um, but but if you're going to call it that, right. what you're implying is that all Black people are going to benefit from it. But right. the only way that that works is if you assume that trickle down will work for Black people, at least if the boss is Black, when it didn't work for anybody else, which you just told me. Right. Which means right. You think that Black people are bees, ants, or the xenomorphs from the aliens franchise. That's what that means. And that's why that shit is racist, right? Yeah. With the best of intentions. But you know it doesn't work for white people. The only reason you think it's going to work for black people is because they're the forever unknowable exotic other. And yeah. they're not. They're human beings. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, it's been mentioned. I can't remember where I picked this idea up from. It might have been your dad, actually. But just the idea that, um, you know, black people and other groups everywhere in the world, you know, should have access to uh, or should be allowed to have politics the way that everyone else is allowed to have yeah. politics right yep. and also allowed i guess if you want to put it that way to have class differences and sort yep. of um differences between you know different subgroups and stuff the same way that everyone else is um and yeah just as you know white people and everyone else in the world has these differences in terms of their access to wealth and the means of production so too does that apply to smaller groups that are within these these countries that's right um yeah, thanks for laying that out. That was, that was really great. Yeah. Um, well, this has been an awesome interview. We're really happy that uh, you could come. And we're we're on a mission to get um, tender queers to listen to your ideas. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we're going to get this out to them. And um, it's going to be great. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been awesome. Um, yeah. And again, apologies, as I said. It's a pathology that I speak in essay format. It's kind of part of the job. But <laughs> <laughs> thank no, you great. for your indulgence. It's great. We got a lot of great... Um, 
content here for people to dive into. So thanks a lot. And so for people who are listening who want to read more of Tara Reed's work, um, there's your book, um, Toward Freedom. You're also like, like you're on Jacobin quite a bit, um, both on the YouTube channel and also on the website. Is there anywhere else that we should send people to look for some of your stuff? Some stuff's on com Common Dreams. Um, okay. And a couple of things, uh, two things that I wrote for them specifically, and then one or two things that they reprinted. So you can find that there and some stuff the port side, I think, uh, re-ran, republished. Amazing. Okay. Well, it's been awesome. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Stay in touch. Absolutely.